Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out. Open them up to the book of Romans. Romans, the 15th chapter. Romans chapter 15 is where we will be for, for the entirety of the lesson tonight as we continue in our uh, expository study through Paul's great epistle to this church at Rome. And tonight that brings us to the penultimate chapter of the book. It is great to see everybody tonight. I hope that you've had a pleasant afternoon. This really, boy, I'll tell you what, if I could have, this was one of those sleep for 15 minutes or so and it feels like a whole afternoon worth of sleep. If I could have got one of those sleeps in, I would have today. But it's been a good afternoon. I hope that you've had an enjoyable day. And I know that I've certainly been encouraged by our time together this morning in, in study and in worship together. And I hope that that is the case for you even this evening as we've come together uh, on this second occasion to close out the day. Let's do some of that studying once again in Romans the 15th chapter. I'm reading here beginning in verse number 1 in Romans 15. And in verse 1 there Paul says, says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Imagine going to a movie theater to watch a whodunit movie, a suspense movie. And imagine you've been watching it for, I don't know, 80, 90 minutes or so, all the twists and plot twists and turns and the switchbacks and all the things that are happening during a suspense movie. And you're just right, kind of right on the edge of your seat as this movie has built and built and built. And it's all kind of leading up to what seems like the final climactic scene where the detective is in the room. And the dirty, shady cop, he's in the room as well. And the drug dealer, who seems like he's the bad guy, he's been in the room as well. Not to mention there's this other character who you've kind of had your eye on for the whole movie and you think maybe they're the real bad guy. They're in the room as well. And all of a sudden you think this is it. This is the moment. We're finally going to get the big reveal as to who the bad guy is. And then the screen goes black and the house lights come up. And the voice over the intercom says... We're now going to take a 15-minute intermission. Wow. That's really annoying. That's really aggravating. What in the world? Why would that happen? We can't have intermission right now because this is it. This is the big finale. This is what we've been waiting for this whole time. Show me the movie. That would be really upsetting. Well, I think here at the end of Romans, that's kind of what happened to Paul. Paul has been building and building and building to this moment. He's been building to his grand conclusion as he tries to provide some help for this church that is experiencing some problems with, with division and disunity. And right here, as he is ready to finally bring all of that to a climax, somebody decided to chop chapter 14 in half and turn it into 14 and 15. Right in the middle of all of that stuff that we studied about at length this morning, about weak brethren and strong brethren and how they needed to respect each other's consciences in matters of liberty and personal opinion, how he's been talking about how we need to work through our differences whenever it comes to those matters of liberty, somebody decided to turn the house lights on right in the middle of all of that and somebody decided to start a brand new chapter. This is perhaps, and I do get persnickety about this from time to time, but this is perhaps the worst chapter division in all of the Bible. We don't know everything about how the chapter divisions and the verse divisions came to be. When Paul originally wrote this letter, it was all one continuous train of thought. 
But what is aggravating about that is because Romans, the 14th chapter, is very, very famous. Everybody knows something about Romans chapter 14, and yet Romans 15 isn't nearly as well known. I sometimes even hear people say and people will ask, Hey, what's your position on Romans 14? As if Romans 15 doesn't even pertain to that discussion at all. But it does. Paul is continuing to talk about unity. He's continuing to talk about the things that he really kind of started in earnest this morning in chapter 14, talking about the importance of getting along and how we can get along. And guess what? Paul just keeps that train rolling. Paul wants to talk about how we can keep on getting along. That's the focus in Romans chapter 15. Paul began this whole section by telling the saints at Rome that they needed to stop judging one another in those matters of Christian liberty. The specific example that he cites in chapter 14 is the issue of eating. Eating maybe certain kinds of meats or maybe eating non-kosher foods and some of the discussions and the problems that that was causing in the church. He then tells those brethren who were considered the strong brethren the brethren who didn't have any issues or qualms at all about eating those kinds of foods, he says, hey, you need to be willing to give up some of those liberties. You need to be willing to sacrifice a little bit, all for the sake of unity and for the sake of not creating a stumbling block for your brothers and sisters. In fact, the final admonition that we noticed this morning at the end of chapter 14 really is kind of directed to the weak brethren when he says, weak brethren, don't violate your conscience. Well, that's a great point. But Paul wasn't done making that point. Somebody decided to throw an intermission right there at the end of verse 23 just as Paul's reaching the pinnacle of the letter. Well, consider our break this afternoon between morning and evening services. Consider that the intermission. And now the intermission is over. Now it's time to resume that train of thought that Paul was building for us in chapter 14 because Paul wants to finish up talking about some of the keys for getting along and being united. Now I'm going to break this chapter into three sections this evening. And that's all going to begin with these first seven verses tonight where Paul says that, hey, when you follow the example of Christ, when you look to Jesus and follow His example, well, that's always going to bring about unity. Read with me again, verse 1, chapter 15, verse 1. We then who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Which have you just noticed there in verse 1? Paul actually identifies himself with the strong. Did you notice that? Paul says, we who are strong. But I want you to notice that even though Paul considers himself one of the strong brethren, and I kind of joked with Glenn Price this morning after services, Everybody considers themselves the strong brother when you have these uh, issues come up. I think we could probably pretty safely say Paul probably was one of the strong brethren. Notice though, even though he feels he's one of the strong brethren, he doesn't look down on the weak brethren. He doesn't say, hey, let's poke fun at them and point the finger at them and talk about how foolish they are. Let's laugh at them because they can't get with the program like the rest of us. No. Paul says that's not what we're going to do. We can't be about pleasing ourselves. What's the goal? The goal, as he talked about in chapter 14, and then says it again here in chapter 15, verse 2, the goal is building up, building each other up, building up our neighbor. That's a new word that Paul's used in this chapter. The word neighbor just means one who is nearby. Take a look around this room. You are nearby to a bunch of folks 
who are your spiritual family. You need to think about them. You need to be mindful of them. And in fact, the consummate proof of that, the consummate reason that we want to be mindful of others is the example of Jesus Himself. And that's exactly where Paul goes next. Verse 3, verse three. for Christ, He did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul quotes here from Psalm 69 and in verse 9 to show and to talk about the attitude that Jesus has. And how when you have the attitude that Jesus had, well, well that's always going to foster and build and nurture unity. Can I just ask you, would any congregation, could any congregation ever divide if everybody is acting like Jesus? I, I would submit to you that, that that's impossible. If everybody is being like Jesus, and I realize even if we all are trying to be like Jesus, we're never going to be like Him perfectly. But if everybody's striving to be like Christ, to have the mind of Christ, as Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, then, then the church can never have division and discord. No matter the level of disagreement that might exist, if everybody is willing to put up, even with some bad behavior, in fact, in the quotation there from Psalm 69, I think that's the idea there of reproaches. You're going to deal with some of those reproaches when we're willing to do that. Then I think just almost anything can be worked out. And so that means if maybe some brother maybe thinks that he has the liberty to be involved in, you know, fill in the blank, activity X, whatever that may be. But there are some other brethren who feel guilty about that. Their conscience won't allow them to be involved in that. Maybe they're saying, you know, I just, I just don't think we can do that. I've tried to understand that, but I just can't quite get there yet. Then the brother who began all that, the brother who thinks he can do it, he's never going to try to press that on the rest of his brethren. He's never going to try to force them to do exactly as he does. Why? Because he wants to build the church up. He's trying to build up, not tear down. And by that same token, kind of flip that around. No brother or sister who maybe does have the scruples, who does have the personal convictions about those things, the person who maybe does have some doubts about that, never is that person going to strap their convictions on everybody else, limiting everybody else's freedom because, well, I don't see it that way. And since I don't see it that way, then you can't do that. None of that can ever happen. None of that will ever happen when we're all trying to be like Christ, having the attitude that is looking to others not pleasing myself, but looking to how I can build others up. In fact, maybe right here is a good place for us to just be reminded that the Lord's church does not have a survival of the fittest mindset. Do you know what I mean by that? In Darwinian evolution, there is the concept of survival of the fittest. And I think sometimes in the church what people get to thinking, in fact, I've been guilty of thinking this before, is that you know what, if we could just run all the weak out of here, we just get all the weekend faith, brothers and sisters, gone, just kind of weed them out one by one, just kind of pick them off one by one, then you know what? The congregation can finally move forward. We could finally be everything that we want to be and we're trying to be in Jesus Christ and we won't be held back anymore. Well, that might fit in Darwin's theory of evolution, but I'll tell you this, that doesn't fit in Jesus' way of doing things. Jesus came here and did what? Jesus came here and He put up with a lot of stuff. Jesus endured a lot of pain, a lot of reproaches, a lot of suffering, all in the interest of putting others above Himself. In fact, maybe that answers the question that a lot of the saints at Rome probably were thinking right about this point, and that is, well, well why should I put up with my hard-headed Jewish brother? The Gentiles were probably thinking. 
Or maybe a Gentile was thinking to themselves, or excuse me, a Jew was thinking to themselves, well, why should I put up with those hard-headed Gentile brothers? You want to know why you put up with them? Because Jesus is putting up with both of you. And He has called us as His disciples to follow in His footsteps. And yet even as I say that, I realize that's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? It is very difficult to do that. That takes some endurance. That takes some patience. That takes some perseverance. Where then can we maybe go to get some of that endurance and patience and perseverance? Well, Paul's already thinking in terms of Scripture. He just got done quoting from Psalm 69.9. And that's exactly where he goes next in verse 4. Look at what he says then in verse 4. Paul says, For whatever was written in former days, that would be your Old Testament, it was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Where can we go to get ourselves some encouragement and patience to just keep on trucking on with our brothers and sisters? Paul says, read your Bible. Read the Scriptures. When we read the Scriptures, we come to see how it is that God has dealt with His people, specifically in the Old Testament. That would be the nation of Israel. And when you read about God's dealings with Israel, what do you find? you find God being incredibly patient. You find God being incredibly careful, handling with kitty gloves almost, a group of people that many times were obstinate and difficult at every turn. And those stories are recorded for us in the pages of the Old Testament for this very reason, to help us. To help us to be encouraged to be involved in the work of unity. When we see how patient our Heavenly Father was with people, that gives us the encouragement to be patient and persevere with even our brothers and sisters. Which then leads to verse 5. Paul says in verse 5, So may the God of endurance and the God of encouragement... You read the Old Testament. You can't come away from those verses without thinking one of the things about God. My, oh my, He is so enduring. He has so much encouragement the way He dealt with those people. May the God of encouragement and endurance grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together, together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I think in many ways, verses 5, 6, and 7 here, they really just kind of summarize the entire message of Romans. It's all about seeking for harmony and unity so that we can glorify God together. You know, sometimes we, we wonder, you know, what can we do that, that will glorify God? What can we do that will truly honor God? I would suggest to you that being united is one of those things. Because think about the opposite of unity. Division, strife, and discord. Well, that dishonors God. That disrespects the Lord. But when we strive to be united as the family of God, that brings great glory and honor to God. God is well pleased when He sees that. The key in all that is to be like Christ. As Paul says in verse 7, Christ has welcomed you. So who am I then to somehow hold you at bay, treat you differently as if you're not really one of us? No, accept one another. I should just say, I'll interject this right here. Verse 7 it's probably one of the most abused verses in all of the New Testament. Sometimes you'll hear folks quote verse 7, just kind of pull it out of its context, 
And they'll try to use that to justify just almost any kind of ungodly behavior or false doctrine. Sometimes folks will point to verse 7 to somehow justify an adulterous marriage. Sometimes folks will point to verse 7 and they'll use that to justify accepting an, an unbaptized person into the fellowship of the local church. But can we remember what these passages in chapter 14 and 15 are about? These passages in 14 and 15 are not about matters of right and wrong. They're not about matters of truth and error. These are about matters of personal opinion, personal conviction. And so when Paul says, welcome one another, accept one another, that's the context in which he is saying that. We can't somehow change the things that God has already legislated in other parts of His Word. Instead, we're going to welcome one another in those matters of, and I'm using the old King James language, doubtful disputations. Which then leads to this next section in verses 8 through 13, where Paul tells us another thing tells the Roman church another thing that can help to bring about unity. And that is that unity can also be found whenever we rejoice together in God's great plan. When we see all that God has done, when we step back and see in the big picture what God has truly worked out here, that brings great rejoicing and that ought to bring unity as well. Let's actually just read all these verses together. In verse 8, Paul says, For I tell you, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Notice there in verse 8, he's made mention of Jews. That's the circumcised. Then there in verse 9, he makes mention of the Gentiles. We're bringing together two groups of people here. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him will the Gentiles hope. Verse 13 now. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Notice how Paul... Kind of maybe in a very subtle way, he's continuing to beat the drum of unity. Paul concludes this section by stringing together just a ton of Old Testament scriptures to prove that God's people must be one. God's plan all the way back from the beginning was to bring together all nations. That was part of those promises that was given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 to bring Jews and Gentiles together so that they might praise Him. And that's exactly what Paul's hinting at here. What Paul does is he quotes verse after verse after verse after verse. He quotes from the prophets. He quotes from the wisdom literature. He quotes from one of the books of history. He even quotes from the law. He ties together four different passages here to show exactly what God's will is. And I find this to just be just kind of some masterful teaching on, on Paul's part. Because Paul has essentially stitched together all of the Old Testament. He has shown that from cover to cover, God's plan was to bring all people together and to make them as one to have the opportunity for all of us to be a part of that one family, the body of Jesus Christ. And that is worthy of praise. 
When you stop and think about through just the whole course of human history, all the things that God has done, the level of love and devotion and the, the attention to detail that God did to bring that plan to come to pass, man, that is reason to praise God. That is reason for all of us with one voice to praise God together. And this is exactly what the Messiah had come to do. In fact, verse 13, really in a lot of ways, really is maybe kind of the the capping off verse of the whole epistle. That everybody in Rome, they needed to work together in joy and peace and hope, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We talked about that back in chapter 8. So they can fulfill the very purpose for which the church exists. And that is to praise and to honor God together. Now, those 13 verses coupled with the 23 verses in chapter 14, I think are more than enough. We we, we get so much, so much helpful stuff in there that helps Christians to get along. It should have helped the Roman church to get along and to strive together for unity. But one more time, Paul's going to slip in this theme of unity. In these last several verses, verses 14 down through the rest of the chapter, Paul's going to talk to the Roman brethren about some of his travel plans. He's going to talk about some of the places that he's been, some of the places that he hopes to go. And in the middle of all of that, he's going to weave the theme of unity throughout it one more time. And so, read with me beginning in verse 14. In verse 14, Paul then says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge, and you are able to instruct one another. Look at there. Paul, Paul starts with just kind of a compliment to the Roman brethren. Said all this stuff. In fact, some of it may have even been very hard to hear. And there may have been some troubles by the time they received that letter in hand. But Paul says, I believe and I'm confident that you understand what I'm saying. I, I believe and I'm confident that you can do what I am saying. You have the right kind of character. You have the right kind of instruction. You have the ability to admonish each other and to teach each other. I know you guys can do this, Paul says. And so verse 15. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Notice how Paul just very tactfully and with humility he says, Hey guys, listen, I know I've said a lot of tough stuff, but I'm simply a servant of Jesus Christ. He uses a lot of priestly sorts of language here in these verses to describe his work. But watch how many times Paul makes reference to the Gentiles. Just maybe even note the number of times he references Gentiles, specifically by name, from this point down through the rest of the book. I think that's intentional. Paul is keeping the Gentile name kind of at the forefront here because he's hinting away at this idea of unity. Verse 17, Paul says in verse 17, In Christ Jesus then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed. Look look there, Paul says, "I, I, I could probably brag on myself, but I'm not going to do that. The credit and the glory for anything that I've done, it it all goes to the Lord. It's what the Lord is doing through me. I'm just a human vessel. I'm preaching where I can, doing it the best that I can, going wherever I can. I want to preach the gospel. In fact, Paul's main desire is to preach the gospel in places where it's never gotten to go before. Verse 19, 
He says, excuse me, verse 18, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Now verse 19, By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul makes reference here to this city named Illyricum. That's also called Dalmatia in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. That was a Roman province that consisted of the area that lied kind of east of Italy across the Adriatic Sea. And it corresponds roughly to kind of modern-day Albania, if you were looking on a map. And what Paul seems to be doing by kind of explaining all those details and giving specific names of, of towns and so forth is he's trying to give an explanation to the Roman brethren as to, why, as to why he's never even been there before. Remember, Paul's writing this congregation kind of sight unseen. He knows some folks there because of their interactions in other places, but he's never been to this church at Rome. He's never got to be in that congregation before. These people, many of which, have, they've never even seen his face before. And so Paul says, he says, as a general rule, I don't go places where churches are already established. However, having kind of already maximized my efforts in some other locations, I'm hoping to come to you. Verse 24, he picks up. Excuse me, verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, I've already been there, already done that, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. That mentioned in verse 24 when he says, I'd like for you to give me some help on my journey. That's Paul's not so subtle way of saying, hey, I would appreciate some financial support. Could you maybe assist me monetarily in this evangelistic work that I'm going to be doing in the region of Spain? However, Paul realizes, hey, I'm not heading directly to Spain i got another important stop I need to make. And in fact, I want to tell you Romans about that stop that I need to make. I need to make a stop in Jerusalem. Well, Paul, what are you going to Jerusalem for? Well, let's let Paul explain verse 25. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor, for the poor among the saints, excuse me, for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you, and I know that when I come to you I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Paul says, the reason I can't come to you just yet and the reason I need to go to Jerusalem is because there is this contribution. There has been this collection of money that has been taken up that I need to deliver. And probably the most important thing that Paul says about this contribution, and this is a contribution that Paul makes reference of in a number of other places in his writing. Read about that, for example, in both of the Corinthian letters. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul talks about this collection. But probably the most important detail about it is he says that the Gentile Christians, they contributed to that collection. And they contributed to that, and that collection is now going to assist Jewish 
brothers and sisters in Christ. See what Paul's done there? Paul has told these Roman brethren, look, Gentile brethren, showing care and concern for their Jewish brethren. Some, most of those are probably people they've never even met before. But because of our oneness in Jesus Christ, I'm going to do something for them. I'm going to make a donation, make a sacrifice out of my own pocket to help those brothers and sisters. You don't think the folks there in Rome probably took that to heart? Probably heard those words and thought, man, here we are fussing and fighting over food. And here's these Gentiles going to bat in a big way for their Jewish brethren in a completely different part of the world. It's important for Paul to tell those brethren in Rome about that. He wants them to understand why that is meaningful so that they can see we can have unity. And so Paul then, as he goes into details about his trip and about his plans, Paul says, yep, I've got some other obligations, but then I'm going to come and see you, hopefully. Which then leads to these final words, this final little paragraph in chapter 15, verse 30. Paul says, So I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers. Prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints and so that God's will, by His will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And so verse 33 May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And so as Paul ends this section of Scripture, there does seem to be maybe some, some concern on his part that he might not be able to get to Rome. He wants to, and so he asks the brethren, Hey, pray for me. Pray that I'll be delivered out of the hands of some of these Jewish opposers. We've been noticing that an awful lot in our study in Acts. And as well, pray that I'll be able to, to bring this gift, this contribution, and that'll be received in a good way. Pray also that an opportunity might be opened that I'd be able to come and see you face to face. You'd be able to see me and I can see you. You can see this mean old guy who said all these mean old things in this letter face to face. And we can know the joy that comes from being brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he closes out really the basic part of the letter there in verse 33. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now I know, and somebody's going to remind me, but Josh there's still another page in my Bible. There's still another chapter. And yes, there is one more chapter. And Lord willing, we will work through that next Sunday night. That will be the final sermon that I will preach here as the regular evangelist. I think it will prove to be a very fitting sermon to close out the work here. But Paul's essential message is now complete. It's a message of unity. It's a message of being united and complete in Christ. Regardless of the terrible chapter break and the intermission that happens there between 14 and 15, hopefully Paul's conclusion has not been lost. We need to be united in Christ. And God has given us every tool to make that happen. Maybe one of the main takeaways from chapter 15 coupled with chapter 14 is that our God, our God is a God of inclusion. God is not exclusive. Now, I know someone will maybe correct me. Hey, Josh, don't you know that the way is broad and there's going to be a lot of people that's going to go to hell and there's fewer people that are going to go to heaven? I understand all of that. But my point in saying that God is inclusive, what I mean by that is God wants everybody. He does. It doesn't matter to Him if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter to Him if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter to Him if you're black or you're white, a man or a woman, young, old, rich, poor. God, God doesn't care about any of that. And what that means is, is that means since God wants everybody, 
That means that fracturing and splintering and division, that's at the crosshairs with the very purposes of God. God wants all people to be united so that we can glorify Him in the biggest and best and most awesome kind of way. And I will say to you, we, and when I say we, I'm not even necessarily just talking about the congregation at Lakeside. I'm just talking about God's people here in the 21st century. We're not the first to have unity problems. Unity problems have existed ever since the first century. We've seen that. Our problems are not unique to us. But what Paul has shown us again and again throughout this letter is that the principles that are contained in the letter to the Romans, they are timeless and they are helpful if we will be willing to then appropriate them into our lives so that we can have the unity that comes in Christ Jesus. What you and I simply need to do is we need to just read this great book. And we need to accept it. And we need to see just how alike all of us really are. At the end of the day, you can strip away all the, all the, the personality things that make us different. Strip away the, the gender roles that make us different. Strip away our, our economic backgrounds, our educational backgrounds. Strip away all of that. What are we? We're all sinners. And all of us who are part of the body of Christ, we've all been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We've all obeyed the same gospel and obeyed that in the exact same way and it's all put us into the same family. A family that hopefully one day will all be reunited in heaven with our Father and with our older brother Jesus. It's the way of unity though that's going to get us there. Perhaps there's somebody here this evening who's not a part of that great family. Do all this preaching on unity and in a lot of ways it does exclude some folks. Because there are folks who are sitting here this evening who heard these sermons today and you're not a part of that body. You're not a Christian. You've never responded in faith to the call of the gospel. I, we don't preach these things to make you feel terrible about yourself or you know, totally exclude you and we don't have anything to say to you. Maybe what we say these things for is to cause you to understand how wonderful it can be to be a part of God's family. And so tonight, can we encourage you, if you are ready, if you have an age of accountability, you're at a moment of readiness to confess faith in Jesus as the Son of God, if you're willing and ready to repent, turn away from sin, turn to God, turn to His way and His will, and then be baptized in water for the remission of your sins, you can leave here tonight a Christian. You can leave here tonight part of a brand new family. It'll be brand new to you. you. have all kinds of brothers and sisters. You have a Father in heaven who loves you very much. Can we help you tonight to obey the gospel? If you are a Christian, but you've not been living as you should, brother or sister, you need to know that when you don't live right, that really makes unity hard. It does. You know, we can talk about how opinions and fussing over opinions makes unity hard. But I'll tell you this, when there's sin in the body, when members are involved in blatant, open, willful sin, mm, that makes it hard for us to be united as well. You need to repent of that. And we're willing and ready to pray with you and to encourage you so you can serve the Lord in a better way. Whatever your need may be, you simply need to come to the front, make those wishes known. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.